0: Hello and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr. We'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us on Banter today is Mackenzie Eaglin, who's a resident fellow here at AEI, where she works on defense strategy, the defense budget, and military readiness. Before joining AEI, Mackenzie worked on defense issues in the House of Representatives, in the Senate, and at the Pentagon in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and on the Joint Staff. Her work on defense policy can be found in Foreign Affairs, The New York Times, Politico, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and War on the Rocks. Thanks for joining us today, Mackenzie. My pleasure.
1: Hi, Mackenzie. It's so great to have you with us today. You know, you are, I think, the leading critic and evaluator and analyzer of military budgets as they work their way through Congress. And it's, it's a great honor to have you at AEI. You are really a master of the details, which is a great thing. You need to know the details. You need to know how things actually work. But I want to ask a big sort of overreaching question first. And that is, I'd like you to just give us an assessment of the United States Armed Forces capability in doing two things right now. How good are they doing these two things? One dealing with great power competition issues from Russia and China, and two, addressing regional terrorism threats that could, you know, come to our shores or harm our friends and, and interests around the world. Just those two. Are we good at that?
2: We're pretty good at the second and we're building up towards the first. And, you know, the thing about the competition is it's a marathon, right? It's not a series of sprints. And arguably, you don't want your defense department as the lead federal agency for that competition, although since DoD brings its hard combat power to the table, it's the pointy end of the spear. It must be a critical tool in the toolkit. So, you know, the department is slowly and steadily increasing its capability and thinking and planning for competition. On the counterterrorism front, you know, the Department of Defense has continued to launch global operations on a daily basis all around the world to combat terrorism, to to prevent, you know, devastating kinds of things that we've seen in the past, like 9-11.
1: Well, let's let's start with that first one, the one that you think we're getting better at day and little by little, the Great Power Competition. And I think you're absolutely right, of course, that Great Power Competition is a battle of lots of departments and lots of aspects of American government and, and society. But sticking with the defense requirements in that competition where are we weakest? What is the aspect of our position that worries you the most and that we should be paying a lot of attention to improving?
2: I worry about a couple of different challenges. Some are, you know, just unique to bureaucracies, right? So, you know, the way that the Department of Defense is funded and the way Congress, you know, cuts the checks for the military, it's a system designed under McNamara, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, Robert McNamara, and it's really not modernized for funding things with ones and zeros, like software and technology, you know, across appropriations accounts, for example. And so the department it really needs a partner on Capitol Hill, and that that partnership in its nascent stages, if you will. That's one. Two, you know, there's this conventional wisdom around town with firm and strong believers, and I'm not opposed to it per se, but you know that technology will save us. That technology is the future, and it will fundamentally change warfighting. I don't know that we won't know until those various technologies are in hand, in the hand of the user, you know, the soldier, the sailor, the airman, and the marine, and, and until they get to play around with it. So it's not, unfortunately, what I hear out of the department is, you know, this is how we want to fight in the future, bring us the technology, when the future really is, here's the technology available now, go figure out how to fight with it. The department is really needs to turn around the telescope, so to speak, and, and the conventional wisdom is taking root that the former is true, not the latter.
1: Hmm. So it's a new kind of warfare, you're saying, that there are, there are aspects of the military response or preparation to great power competition that are not about aircraft carriers and planes and weapons, conventional weapons, they're about a, a different kind of weaponry. Can you just give an example of something like that? What are you thinking of? Sure. A
2: couple of examples, too. And You know, you still need your basic fleets and inventories that are resident in the military services. You know, you still need your ships and your vehicles and your aircraft. The troops got to fly, sail, fight and move constantly, right? But on those trucks, so to speak, those generic chassis and airframes and hulls, you can change the way they are powered and the energy that they produce and therefore the technology and the capability and the combat power of these platforms can generate as a result. In some cases, you need brand new stuff, you know, because you need more energy, for example. And then in other cases, you can use your old stuff and adapt it to the new world. And so what we're seeing, for example, in the Navy and in the Air Force are, you know, this sort of manned, unmanned teaming. And in the Army, we're seeing it with technology, you know, these basically these virtual reality night vision goggle headsets, which are really like mini computers. The Army's never had this kind of capability, for example, and I've written about this with John Ferraria on AEI staff. And basically what the Army did was it shoved aside the bureaucracy It said, we're not going to have a requirements document. We're not going to send this through three years of study. We're just going to put out a headset and we're going to invite Microsoft to come stand next to soldiers in the field, and code in real time the changes that they want to see in this in this new headset, these new goggles, these VR goggles. And they did, and it's a remarkable capability, and it's a leap ahead capability and something they've never had before because they put, you know, private sector coders, you know, Microsoft is the lead in virtual reality, arguably, next to the soldier, and out came this great product. And, you know, that's really an example
1: as well. That's great. Mm. That, that's that. Now, now we're talking gadgets and special, <laughs> special equipment and... Science. I love that. And, you know, we often talk about what's wrong with America, what's wrong with our defense capabilities, what we need to do to make things better. What in the United States military are we really good at? And not just compared to ourselves in the past, or but compared to the rest of the world, what are we still the best at?
2: So, you know, that's a good example of the one I just gave, just sort of innovation on the fly. You know, as opposed to invention from scratch, which is really what the department's gonna need to be more and more agile doing going forward. But really where we're unparalleled and unique in on the global stage are several different features. One is our training and posture and readiness. You know, what you know, we have a professional fighting force, meaning, you know, we don't force you to join the military if you don't want to anymore after Vietnam. That's just, you know, so we you volunteer and we will promise to train you. And ideally, never let you go into a fair fight. That's sort of the contract, the sacred contract we have with our service members. And so their training is really unparalleled, depending on whatever they're being asked to do. And that training is
1: always... uh, Slow down. Slow down. You said an interesting thing there, and I want to make sure I heard it correctly. You said, we make a bargain or we make a deal. We promise to train you, and then we promise what? What did you say? To
2: never let you go into a fair fight with the enemy.
1: Oh, in other words, because our advantage is so much greater that it's not fair at all because we're going to overwhelm them.
2: That's the inherent, like the unwritten social contract Americans have with service members. Like, we don't want to put you into harm's way, but if we have to, Mm -hmm. we're going to do everything it takes on our end. You know, spend what it takes, build up what it needs so that you're not in a fair fight with the enemy.
1: That's right. I've never heard it put that way. Have you ever heard that? That's interesting. Because, you know, a fair fight, sometimes people say, just give me a fair fight and we'll win. But you're saying... Don't give me a fair Don't point. give. We want to be so much more capable and, and overwhelming that it's it's not really fair at all because we're so much more strong. And I guess that is a good deal mm-hmm. for the United States Armed Service members, or it's a it, fair it, deal.
2: Yes, that's right. And then, of course, if, if you are injured or harmed in any way, the other sacred contract, I'd argue we have two with our service members and our families, is that we'll take really, really, really good, exceptionally care of you for the rest of your life. And if you're killed, you're survivors. So, you know, it's, it's an important contract, the two of them, but they're, as you might imagine, they're quite expensive, but they're worth it. And that's what the American people have said that they want to invest in. And that's why we do spend so much on training. And we do spend so much on things like health care.
1: So, so but you think contracts. the result of that is that our servicemen, our officer corps, our enlisted men and women are the best in the world?
2: I do think that's true. Yes, actually. Now, you know, does that mean they're perfect? No. They're, you know, they're an organization like any other. Are, are they better than the rest of us? No. But, you know, what they strive to do each day, and they're a learning organization. And the department is trying to change right now, you know, to achieve the two goals that you outlined in your first question, Robert, you know, to continue the ever-running, low-grind, counterterror fight, but also really to change its mindset and operations and planning towards this Longer-term competition, and competition is not conflict, right? So the department, their job is to keep the peace, but if that fails, to win the war. Keeping the peace is really hard, it turns out, right? So they're trying to do both at the same time, and those require very different skill sets, capabilities, mindsets, and training. And, you know, my hat's off to them for for that. It's it's not easy, but it has to be done.
1: Well, you know, in my experience in talking to people who are officers of the United States military or enlisted men and women is that they are really outstanding individuals and that they they bring a human capital to those institutions that is strong. And so I'm glad to hear that you feel that way, who've studied it more closely than I have, and that that's still true. And you mentioned before the all-volunteer, that there's no draft and these are people who've signed up for this voluntarily, who believe in something bigger than themselves, presumably. And that makes our servicemen and women stronger and more effective than places where they're dragooned into service.
2: Oh, that's right. They swear an oath to the Constitution to protect and defend all of the residents' freedoms and inherent rights they're in and therefore you and me, which does make them a remarkable organization in their unity of purpose and their loyalty and in their belief in something, you know, bigger than the individual, which is great. The other two ways I would say that our military is unique on planet Earth just really, it's a master organization of truly like global scale reach of logistics, right? And so we fight the away game. We are, we are buttressed by two friendly neighbors in the north and the south and two big oceans on the east and the west. It's a very unique geography that has served America quite well since our founding. But because of that geography, we tend to have to take everything and put it forward when we have to fight, or even to start to, to keep the peace, like I was talking about earlier. And that requires a lot of dust and moving parts and logistical capability to keep everyone moving, functioning, fed. And, and involvement
1: in the world and partnership with allies. I think that's a it's a big responsibility, but it has great benefits because it, it forces us to engage around the world. And that leads me to following up on the terrorism question. You sort of, sort of threw in at the end of the answer that we're very good at that and we've been very good at that. And, and you made me feel as if we were more secure and safe, which is what I want to feel. And I believe it. But you're worried. How badly is our ability to fight terrorism being eroded by President Trump's insistence on bringing troops on the ground home?
2: Well, because some of his decisions are sort of underway, you know, it's hard to know in real time what those consequences are. But I can tell you just sort of being a defense planner, my career, you know, I know enough to know that the force numbers that we have forward for counterterrorism are so small relative to the size of our active duty military. You know, it's roughly 700 or so troops coming out of Somalia. There probably are only a few hundred more that are remaining behind, give or take. You know, that's a really insignificant force posture for the outsized effect that they give, right? We call those force multipliers, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's, a, it's a small group, but they're doing bigger work and having greater effect than the, the sheer numbers would represent. But to me, I'm just not really convinced <laughs> that, that that just feels very penny wise and pound foolish. You know, it seems linked to some, you know, elect, re-election sort of promises. And I, I get that instinct, that desire, even I think Biden shares it to some extent, President-elect Biden. Who want to sort of draw down the large number of forces overseas, but it really has to be on a case by case, thoughtful basis. It just can't be a broad sweep just because we want to say we've achieved that.
1: It seems to me that the motivation behind it is this sort of opposition to the taking of casualties. And for a while now, we haven't been taking casualties, and the costs aren't that great. But as a result, he's still bringing people home. I'm not sure about the public's discomfort with these important forces in various parts of the world combating terrorism. I mean, what's your view of the public mood on this?
2: That is a really great point and question. So the public, the American people have shown repeatedly in the past, if they have a leader who believes in the mission, they will absolutely line up also like loyal and good soldiers and follow them to an extent, to the extent that they see progress and there's a clear end state and an objective and, you know, they have good leadership in the military, they have political support back home, etc. You know, The American people are overwhelmingly supportive of of military missions, even when the troops are in harm's way, so long as they see all of those other things, but particularly leadership from the White House. In terms of accepting casualties, by extension, they also are willing to do that. Again, if they believe in the cause and they believe in the mission and they think it's important enough to do that, you know, to put their own children in harm's way, they will. But, you know, it's just interesting because to your point about, you know, that's right. Casualty numbers are down, partly because troop numbers are, are down in lots of different places. But it's really a unique time for the military, again, sort of a ribbon that runs through the around kind of our whole conversation is a couple of years ago, well, really the tail end of the Obama administration and then into the Trump administration for better or worse. And in some cases, it was worse when, you know, we pulled up the stakes from Iraq and then we saw violence increase. We didn't accept the status of forces agreement, follow on, for example. And then in other places. And then what we saw was, you know, sort of unsteady peace for our troops from around the world. There's still plenty in harm's way doing counterterror, terror, but the rest are now sort of holding this unsteady peace, I'd argue. And what we're finding are more troops now are dying in, in these sort of peacetime training accidents than in hostilities with any enemy. And that's partly because of the last 20 years and what they've been doing and the change in training that we've been talking about. But also in some cases, you know. Their stuff has been worn out, man and machine, from this grind, this 20-year war fight for counterterrorism and insurgency, that there really does need to be a period of reset and
1: refresh. So I've been getting some criticism of the Banter podcast from my <laughs> wife, who says that I don't let Phoebe ask enough questions. And it's because I get so excited about our scholars' work, and i got a lot of questions. Yeah. So I'm going to stop now and let Phoebe... Get in there and because I don't want to be accused of, and God forbid, mansplaining. That can't no. ever happen in my case. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Phoebe, fire away.
0: Sure. Mackenzie, I wanted to ask you about kind of we're in this transition period right now. The Trump team is is outgoing, Biden team incoming. Overall, how would you describe kind of the legacy of the Trump administration on defense issues? There was a lot of talk about, you know, rebuilding the military, how that was a priority. There was also Lafayette Square, and, you know, some would say kind of a breakdown of civil-military relations. Overall, how do you think they did on defense issues?
2: Great question. You know, it's a mixed bag, right? And it depends on the priority. So when it comes to rebuilding, you know, this president dead for significant new resources, additional resources above and beyond the plans of the last administration and to the military. I call it the three-year Trump bump for defense that started in fiscal year twenty seventeen through twenty nineteen. But then those budgets flattened out. And and that's not necessarily an issue, but it became an issue because this administration, they get an A plus on their new security and defense strategies that came out of the White House and the Pentagon, which was this basically this affirmation of that, you know, the United States has to continue its work on counterterrorism, but also pivot towards this long-term competition with China and Russia, which require, you know, different Again, different skill sets, capabilities, services, theater approaches, et cetera. Those are two, you know, I think significant successes to some extent, although I took issue at AEI was where that new money went in many cases. Sometimes it was the right place and sometimes it just didn't have the effect I think the White House was seeking. Like, for example, there was two years of the Trump administration budgets where he wasn't buying any more ships than President Obama, although I know that President Trump wanted to see a bigger Navy. It's hard to do that quickly. Don't get me wrong, but you know that you know, there could have been some some different priorities underneath those higher budget. And then when it comes to civil-military relations, CV spot on, right? That you know we've seen a, a rapid deterioration in civil-military relations. My boss and colleague Corey Shockey writes about this and talks about this and thinks about this a lot. You know, it didn't start with this administration, but it certainly accelerated.
1: I noticed that in the return analysis of the election, that there was some statistics I've seen that indicate that military personnel turned out less for President Trump than they had in 2016. So there's clearly something going on there in terms of that relationship. Now, you've sort of hinted at things, maybe misspent priorities or issues, but but so sticking with sort of the current situation or the experience under President Trump's administration, what is the... Spending in the military budget that bothers you the most. What's the biggest boondoggle? You know, I always worry that you know, in the crony capitalism world that we live in, in part, that there are nefarious contractors deceiving the military into buying stuff they don't need or paying a price that's much larger than they should pay. Does that still go on, or have you fixed that, Mackenzie?
2: <laughs> I've definitely fixed it. No, not quite. Then I wouldn't have job, right, Robert? know, I mean. Right. In any organization of this size and magnitude and scope and reach, right? So it's a roughly $700 billion budget. If you include a couple of extraneous funds for the Department of Energy, it's close to three quarters of a trillion dollars annually. There's also one of the largest organizations on planet Earth, right? So direct payroll, there are nearly 3 million people, indirect 4 million. You include the defense industrial base, you know, these companies big and small that sort of equip the warfighter, the arsenal of democracy, if you will. And so it's a lot of people boiling away for good cause. And so, yeah, there is duplication. There is some waste. There's occasional fraud. The good news is that the Department of Defense has made a lot of progress and stride in terms of its internal audit, and that has given it visibility to see things that it, it didn't see in the past. In terms of boondoggles, you know, they, they come up as they come up. And, you know, once they're aware of them and they're investigated, you know, that's important that that kind of stuff continues. But like generally speaking, kind of what concerns me, I get worried about a department stuck in the industrial age, right? So colleague AEI colleague Bill Greenwald, he talked about our Soviet style, you know, acquisition and purchasing process. But it goes beyond that to even our hiring and firing processes, you know, who we're bringing in. The kinds of benefits we want to give them, we're assuming mom doesn't work and mom stays home or or even that the forces are unmarried. We assume most people still live on base when they don't, for example, or on post. And so I worry a lot about spending on things that service members don't value and not spending enough on the things that they do and therefore worrying about long-term retention.
1: So there isn't a piece of equipment, a plane, a special fighting device <laughs> that you think is oversold?
2: You know, they're in the... The last few years, there have been a couple of lawsuits against various, you know, contract awards like for the Pentagon's cloud contracting, for example. And there have been a couple of punitive penalties and fines on companies for overcharging the government for various parts. That's good. And that just shows the system's working even when at first it might not be working right. If there is overcharging to the Department of Defense for something that elsewhere, that contractor is charging much, much less, we have to find those cases when they happen and fix them very publicly and name and shame the companies and people doing it.
1: So Phoebe brought up President-elect Biden and his new team. We're conducting this interview right after the President-elect announced his choice for the Secretary of Defense, who may or may not be confirmed. What are you most worried about about the Biden team and what do you think we should keep our eye on? And how do you think he's doing so far in his staffing decisions?
2: You know, it's... So far, many of the Biden-named appointees are, are familiar faces, right? So it's kind of the counter Trump approach where it's very swampy. If you will, we all work together. We all know each other.
1: You're <laughs> in the swamp, too, there. Right. It's easy, <laughs> easy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I know. Within the swamp, Robert, then there's a foreign policy specific group called the blob.
1: Yeah, yes, that's <laughs> right. And, Rose, yes. and that's
2: me, right? Right. So not only am I swampy, I'm also in the blob. So. Right, so these are all just like I said. You know, we've all worked together. These, these are old hands of Washington, so to speak. So far, so in some cases, that might be reassuring to a lot of people who think you know this administration made too many mistakes or didn't bring in a serious enough mix of seasoned sort of Washington veterans and old hands and then new faces. Because I do think you want a mix of both. It's important to, to shake it up and have people who believe in the president's priorities. Otherwise, you know, things just kind of hum along without really changing, and you can leave office and find you didn't. Have great ascot. So in that sense, President Biden is choosing true believers—you know, people who really want to carry out his agenda. Although I, you know, I'm still trying to parse what that is. Although I think it's, you know, in general, multilateralism, reemphasis and focus on allies, reinvigoration of global organizations and institutions. I mean, I think I know the main tenets of his vision. Although he hasn't sort of put a bumper sticker on it, and these the people he's chosen really reflect that. At the Department of Defense, you know. General Austin, he's he's a great unknown figure to many people. Even though many of us work in this field for very long, he's he's dubbed the Invisible General, meaning he's a head down, nose to the grindstone, you know, just get the job done, work behind closed doors. And he's been at the lead of the counter terror fight for many years over in Central Command in the Middle East. But it's not his resume that at all concerns him. I think sounds like a remarkable general and, and terrific human being. It's really just the stars on his shoulder that are concerning.
1: In that, you know, the exception for Mattis was okay or acceptable, but let's not do this again. Is that what you mean? That's right.
2: That's right. You know, that's one of the great features of our federal republic and something the founding fathers had at the forefront of their minds was this system of civilian control of the military and how important that was for a variety of reasons. You know, we're not a banana republic. We don't want our military launching coups if they don't agree with their politicians. We also don't want them being police officers, you know, roaming the streets with weapons, uh, doing the job of, you know, local domestic law enforcement. Well,
1: did you oppose Except the Mattis safety. appointment on those grounds?
2: Yes, I did, personally. Oh, you did? Did that- you
1: write Did you write about it at AEI?
2: I think I tweeted. About okay,
1: okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. Consistency is important, don't you think, Phoebe? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that Republicans have a little problem here because Americans will view it as it was okay for you, but it's not okay for us. It's okay for when it's Mattis, but it's not, it's okay when it's an African-American general of distinguished service. I think you got to be careful with that one. I sort of wish we hadn't made, I guess we hadn't made the Mattis exception. I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to be answering questions, just (laughs) asking questions. No, I
2: totally agree with exactly how you characterize it. You know, and at the time, there were a lot of callers sounding the alarm that this is, break glass in case of emergency, well, then it becomes really easier to break the glass again. And that's, that's kind of what we're seeing. But it's really, I, I worry it's, it's not a reflection of this man or, or that man, Jim Metz. It's, it, it, to me, I worry it's a reflection of the the shallow bench of pure civilian expertise and, and background that's been you know brought up over generations in the Department of Defense and national security community. It signals that politicians in particular really feel like it's they need to rely on military expertise, even as they decry what they call the militarization of U.S. foreign policy. But it's very odd.
1: As you know, Mackenzie, we are opposed to identity politics here at AEI. And, and so I'm, I'm really hesitant to ask this question because I don't want to be accused of being a supporter of identity politics. But you set a shallow bench. And as my understanding is that there is a woman candidate for the Secretary of Defense who sort of lost it at the in the last lap. And I'm wondering, as a woman in this field, do you care about that? Does that bother you at all?
2: I do care, but it doesn't bother me. You know, she could still get the nod eventually. I still see that as a great possibility at some point, even potentially in this administration, meaning, you know, after if General Austin's confirmed, potentially after that, you know, and of course, I'm watching the sort of level just below secretary, you know, who's going to be appointed to run the services, the military services, for example. I really do care about I don't want diversity for diversity's sake, whether that is women or people of color or economic background or education or anything. But I am hopeful and optimistic. It's a constituency of one. You work for one person, the commander in chief, and they can they can appoint whomever they choose. I do appreciate that she made it to the final running, as she is certainly qualified, more than qualified and would have been a terrific pick, in my my opinion. I hope that she'll get another look soon.
0: I want to ask a little bit about the NDAA lots of discussion about that right now. And I guess I'm just curious, after such a long history of the NDA kind of almost automatically passing, how do you think it's we've reached this point where it's a vehicle for so many other kind of political fights? And how can we kind of separate that out in the future?
2: You know, I'm not sure that we can. Right?
0: And so we're
1: talking just... about the <laughs> National Defense Authorization Act, which yes. is the way we fund the military <laughs> budget every year it's got bipartisan support in both houses. It's going to pass by, you know, solid votes. President Trump has threatened to veto it over the Confederate, the renaming of the of the bases that are named after Confederate generals. I believe and that's right. And Section correct.
0: 230 now.
1: And Section 230. And you asked our great expert, Mackenzie, what she thinks of that. All of that. Yes. Okay. Fire away. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
2: you. Yeah, that's right. It's our just annual defense policy and spending bill. And this would be its 60th consecutive year of passage. So really that that's unique among really almost anything else Congress has. You know, I don't, there are no other federal agencies that receive annual predictable policy bills that pass both chambers and are signed into law. And, you know, you could argue, well, the defense department is the largest and it, it should. And I, I would say, yes, that's that's all true. But really, I would love to separate these other bigger issues, Phoebe, to your question, but you know, I don't see that coming partly because of its successful streak. You know, it is considered an important must-pass bill. That's why, precisely why it attracts non-relevant, non germane issues like the repeal of Section 230, the sort of tech liability immunity shield, for example. That's why last year the White House was horse trading with congressional Democrats in the House and the Senate. They wanted the space force and House and Senate Democrats wanted paid federal family leave. Up to 12 weeks. I mean, are there defense civilians who would benefit from that? Yes, but this was for U.S. government writ large, which this bill does not have jurisdiction over other agencies, and and yet it made it in the final bill. And we see this every year, usually with social issues, but it could be anything from from these issues to the sage grouse bird, which was a big holdup a couple of years ago <laughs> for the defense authorization bill protection for this bird, this species. So. Unfortunately, the way it is, I don't see that changing, but I agree with you as a purist. I would love it to stop.
1: So th- what you're saying, I think, is that the history of it is, is that this does happen. Extraneous issues get thrust in and sometimes they make it through, but the bill generally passes and gets signed. Is it ever been signed as a result of an override of a veto?
2: I believe if it were vetoed and overridden, this would be the first time for the defense authorization bill for that to happen.
1: And this will be broadcast after this is all resolved. But do you think there's any chance of that happening?
2: So if I'm the White House, I'm watching the vote count in the House and Senate by what margins they pass. So if the bill passes this first go round right now, the final conference report by super majorities, meaning enough to override a veto, I think I'm going to just move on to another issue. That would be pretty embarrassing with weeks to go in the job to have Congress override. We're not dealing with a president (laughs) who's
1: been concerned about embarrassment.
2: (laughs) That's right. If it were a questionable margin by which it passes, I think he will follow Mm through with it to, to send the signal and to dare Congress to override him. Yeah, there's also a thing called a pocket veto. President Trump can just let the bill sit on his desk and not sign it at all and force the new administration to deal with it. I think that's more unlikely. My guess is he'll read the writing on the wall and he'll hear Republican leaders tell him. Don't want us to do this because we've whipped our caucuses and we haven't. And frankly, all members, all both leaders and both parties, the message will be pretty clear. I have a suspicion that the votes are more than enough to override a veto, so he probably won't follow through. I hope he doesn't. We'll
1: we'll we'll remember this, and we'll see how you did in your prediction (laughs) ability. So we're getting close to the end, but I did want to give you a chance to say if there's anything. Two topics I'd like you to address: a, anything about the defense. Question and that we haven't addressed that you think our listeners should be very aware of because they're vitally important, and then the second I want to talk about AI a little bit and our acquisition of new talent and new scholars and how do you feel we're positioning ourselves to be effective and impactful in these discussions? So start with the first and then move into the second.
2: Oh boy, now you, (laughs) I have. I applaud your questions because we have done a good job covering the waterfront. I would say that, you know, as we focus on the new administration coming in and, you know, they're going to think differently about China, but I'm not, not after COVID and, and many, many other different things that have happened over the years, directed to and toward and at American for nefarious reasons by the Chinese Communist Party and its chairman. I don't want us to take our eye off the ball, frankly, you know, you know, that, there is a pacing threat for the Department of Defense. Yes, it has to do lots of other things, but we have to maintain our, our focus and emphasis, time, tasks, people, and attention, and dollars on solving these bigger problems. You know, It is expensive to maintain a large standing military in peacetime. It's way more expensive to go fight wars with that military too. So it's worth the investment, and I, and I hope that it doesn't get watered down or muddied for the future your second point, yeah, boy, has Aei really gone gangbuster in <laughs> in a really difficult year right yeah. 2020 it's hard for nonprofits and amazing organizations like ours you know everybody's struggling incomes are are being lost or down and our team has just really thanks to you Robert and Corey in particular like I said we've been on a hiring spree and we've brought in some of the best talent that you can find in the country
1: well, that sounds nice yeah that sounds nice and I want to say your answer. Just directing the staff here, your answer to the first question is something we should transcribe and, and send to the Wall Street Journal and put it in the notable and quotable, because mm-hmm. that is a very succinct summary of why it's so important that we protect our resources, the investments in the Department of Defense. Yeah. So wonderful to have you, Mackenzie. Thank you for being here. Come again. Yeah. Well, it's been a
2: lot of fun. Thank you for having me. And please grade me on my veto prediction next yeah.
1: week. <laughs> <laughs> We will Will do do. that. also, we're going to look with the record to see if you were consistent on Mattis and President-elect Biden's choice. Because, you know, consistency does matter to voters. You know, I like to be fair. (laughs) Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org. Before we wrap up this episode, we want to make sure that you hear a message from one of our great colleagues here at AEI about an exciting opportunity to get more involved with our work.
3: Hello, I'm Christopher Scalia, Director of Academic Programs at AEI, and I'd like to tell you about AEI's Summer Honors Program. The Summer Honors Program is an immersive, week-long learning experience in which exceptional undergraduates of all political stripes study policy with AI scholars, enjoy wide-ranging expert panel discussions, and learn about policy career opportunities. Additionally, a small cohort of students will be accepted to a more intensive, month-long opportunity. This year, we're offering 16 courses that explore foreign and defense policy, economics, the law, education, healthcare, and more. Our instructors include some of AEI's most renowned scholars as well as distinguished college professors. Did I mention that the program is fully funded? We cover travel costs, provide lodging and meals, and offer a stipend. So if you're an undergraduate who's eager to study policy with renowned experts and to engage in substantive conversations with other students, or if you know someone who fits that bill, I encourage you to learn more about this opportunity and take a look at our full list of courses and instructors by visiting our website. Just Google AEI Summer Honors Program. But don't delay. The early decision deadline is January 4th, and the final deadline for applications is March 1st.